Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. So glad to have you with us here. Uh, and uh, we are so grateful to have some place with nuance and uh, doing some deep dives. We don't really mind having fun either. Um, <laughs> you might wonder why I'm on location this week. I have the privilege of actually meeting somebody in person uh, to do this podcast. Uh, and I'm here with Del Walters, who I will introduce in just a moment. But I just want to make sure those of you listening, um, by the, if you like the show, please tell a friend. Seriously, listeners, recommending our program is the number one way to get the word out. I am your host, Jessica Stone, along with the Swing for the Fences fella next door in uh, California, Corey Nathan, joined by him today. And we are really grateful to be with Del Walters here, who I'm going to tell you loads about. He is currently the Washington Bureau Chief of the Black News Channel. He's a multiple winner of the Emmy Award. <laughs> how many How many golden ladies do you have? Somewhere uh, there's a couple dozen, but that's yeah. about it. They're yeah. doorstops. Good doorstops. Oh, just a couple dozen. Yeah, very just modest. A couple dozen. He was one of the first African-American anchors at a local news broadcast beginning in 1979. And since then, he has anchored local news broadcasts around the country from Dallas to D.C. He's got a nose for in-depth investigations on race, religion, crime and punishment and political misdealings. Mm -hmm. He spent four years as the morning anchor so he could actually be funny. We'll see if he can be funny with us today at Al Jazeera America before it folded. Continues to seek technological solutions to race relations and media. Above all, I really think Dill Walters is in many ways the definition of a guest that talk in politics and religion without killing each other. So far, we haven't killed each other. Well, so you. that's a testament. And we've right done there. it. We have actually done this before. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, we used to work together uh, at Fox News Radio and had many a conversation overnight on politics and religion. And we both walked out alive. Yep. That's uh, that's saying something. <laughs> that's an accomplishment. <laughs> no, actually, and, and we actually walked out friends. Yeah, Not just a lot, really but did. friends, and that's good. And I've been on his program, and now it's my chance to have uh -huh. him on our program. And uh, man, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to grill you, buddy. Okay, Don't that'll worry. work. Don't worry. Um, but I wanted to introduce you to Corey. He's uh, Mishfrucha, you know, family Mishfrucha. in Yiddish. Mishfrucha. What's you know what we call that? Yeah, yeah when, you, that? when you're black, we call it from Atlanta. You're from Atlanta. You're my cousin <laughs> on the bus. Funny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I could tell that that uh, I could tell which you, there's there's half of the side that's shiksa and half of the side that's uh, mishpacha because you don't quite get the in the mishpacha. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'll work on my phone. Get back to you. <laughs> You know, and if we were in person, you'd have to watch for the, the spittle coming out of my mouth. I'm going to work on my phone, right? Oh, you uh, haven't lived until you've eaten with a bunch of old Jewish men that are eating like a filth of fish and, and pickled herring and, and the, it's flying out of their mouth. Yeah. As, as my father once said, man, if he was eating bullets, I'd be dead. <laughs> Let me just say that I've lived. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I've been there. And it's true. Yeah, yeah. it's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> So. I, 
well, I was little with with the, the with that generation of the gefilte fish throwers, and my grandmother <laughs> was a Manischewitz box cooker. You know, Wait, she I think cook except off the side of a Manischewitz box. She I think you just came up with a new Olympic sport, Jess. Uh, gefilte fish throwers. Gefilte fish throwing. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's kind of like a cross. What is that biathlon where you cross country ski and you? Oh yeah, the, the shoot. You're talking the Winter Olympics to a black guy. Yeah. Not happening. You okay. know, we're good in the Summer Olympics, but when it comes to the, you know, the Winter Olympics. Gymnastics. Yeah. Well, basketball, there you go. Inside basketball. basketball, volleyball. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the Winter Olympics with the cross country and yeah, stop and I mean, shoot with skis. What's not to love about this? Yeah, guy? we don't do that. We have, yes. <laughs> yeah, we just don't do that. So I wanted to start with, we are, we're out in the country right now. Mm-hmm. So um, you grew up in the country. You grew I up did. in Wheeling, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, I just looked up the population of black folk in Wheeling, West Virginia. It's Three. Like Five percent was it at three when you lived there? Three percent. So I it's grown there. a little bit. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that was like and how that sort of shaped your views on race and maybe even religion as well, because I know you were a churchgoer. Wheeling was a working class town, so it was divided between your Protestants and your Catholics. Um, and you were. I was a Methodist. I grew up in the Methodist uh, church, and but we still. My husband was a Methodist. We still ate fish on Friday because it was a good shot in the brew town. You had your Italians, you had your Irish, you had Jewish people, you had um, every ethnic group was there but represented in small numbers. And I think the difference was when we were growing up, you felt free to actually talk about the differences in religions. And I think that's the difference between Mm. then and now. Um, Like I said, Fish on Friday just seemed normal because the Catholic school, the high school was a very big school. Mm. We had two schools in Wheeling. We had a Wheeling Central Catholic. We had Wheeling High School. So So when you're only talking about, yeah. yeah. So Notre Dame was big. My brother and sister both went to Notre Dame. So the whole thing about the Catholic experience was big in Wheeling. So I didn't know what I was. Hmm. Growing up, I didn't know whether I was Catholic because everybody cheered for Notre Dame on the weekends, or I didn't know if I was Methodist because we went to church on Sunday. But it was confusing. Hmm. But it's, I suspect, been a part of your success later in life. Yeah, I think that I think that when we talk about religion, you can talk about Catholic, you can talk about Methodist, you can talk about Protestant, you can talk about all the different denominations, but you also have to separate black and white. Mm-hmm. And there's a different experience. And we talked about this before. Mm-hmm. There's a different experience when you go to a black church than there is when you go the to a white church. The music is better. The food's better, too, after church. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I always describe the difference between the black church and a non-black church as a spiritual level experience versus an intellectual level experience. Hmm. Black people go to church because they need to. And then later on in life, we start to learn more about the religion. I think white people go to church to learn about religion and find out later in life that they need it. And I think that's the difference between Hmm. the two. What about the Pentecostals and the Charismatics? Because that was part of my upbringing and that was very experiential. And our music wasn't so bad, but, uh, you know, you can't beat the gospel. You can't beat the gospel music. More Southern than Northern. More Southern than Northern. You know, so West Virginia, Wheeling, where I was, (laughs) is right on the border of Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, West Virginia. So right as I-70 goes through and it's straight shot to Cleveland, straight shot to Columbus. So it wasn't so much a Southern church and it was a working class shot and brew Northern church. What does shot and brew mean? Um, Shot and brew means that after you finished up work, yeah, you went to the to the local bar, every neighborhood corner and Wheeling had a had a bar joint. Oh, and after work every day you went you had a shot in the brew. And it wasn't that you were an alcoholic, even though we were. It was just part of the culture. You went out after work and you had a shot. Exactly. Part of the culture. Yeah. 
the warm beer, though, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but that's beside the point. Um, we can edit that out, Ken. We the sex <laughs> <laughs> did, did your pastor growing up talk about the sin of racism, especially because you were coming up through the 60s? It had to be part of the social conversation. Not the sin of racism. Um, you know, it's funny. It's funny the way you phrase the question. Did he talk about the sin of racism? No. Did we talk about racism? Yes. We never really talked about it from the standpoint of it being a religious thing. Mm. We talked about it from the standpoint of being a societal and cultural thing. So we but right or wrong. Where did the right or wrong come from, if not from a biblical foundation? Home. Didn't get it from church. Got it from home. So church wasn't telling you it was wrong. No, we were getting our lessons on morality at that time from home. Really? The dinner table at, at um, you have to remember that. To separate them out is damn near impossible during that time. Um, separate what out? Home. Okay. You know, there's always the saying that if you go into a black church in the 1960s, there was a picture of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Jesus. You know, and those black are the three. Jesus. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. White Jesus. No, that white Italian Jesus in the 1960s. The Italian picture. Possibly look like. Yeah, the one. He looked more like Corey. Yeah. Let's face it. No, he didn't. But the one, the one. Wait, wait, where hold on. Let me give you the Jesus look. Like, yeah. Oh, oh wow. Now we got him. And it's clean, I hope, Corey. Yeah. But we didn't we didn't have so if those. If Jesus had made it past 33, this is what he would have looked like. That's a scary thought now that you bring it up. <laughs> Only a Jewish person could say something like that. I am so offended with you. That oh, you Corey's not offended. You're not allowed to be offended. Come on. But <laughs> it wasn't, to answer your question, it wasn't, they weren't separate. Um, and, and here's what you have to keep in mind. In a white church, the minister might have been the minister. Uh-huh. In the black church, the minister was the minister, but he also might have worked at the dry cleaner or maybe the grocery store or maybe the pharmacy and the minister. Uh-huh. So it wasn't just that he had one. He had a lot of hats. He had a lot of hats. And he also showed up on Sunday or Saturday afternoon for dinner at your house because the ministers traveled pretty much from home to home because it was a it's a lower class thing as opposed to an upper class thing. So. Was there any pressure to serve the pastor like, you know, the best roast? Oh beef? yeah, oh yeah. What did your mom make? Um, Sunday I know dinner. It was your mom. Yeah. Your dad did cook. No, dad cooked. Really? I come from a family of cooks. Wow. We, we are love just finding to cook. out a lot about Dell. I really love explains. to cook. Um, dad cooked, but dad was the grill. Dad was barbecue. Yeah. So you have to understand that there are certain traditions that were passed down. I learned barbecue from my father. He learned it from somebody else because it wasn't his father. I've had his food. Um, but mom was your typical Southern housewife in the sense that, and it was a very, very traditional house in the sense that it was chauvinist. We used to tease dad all the time, dad, you know, come on into the 21st century. But mom felt that the meal had to be on the table. Um, fried chicken, usually on Saturday or Sunday, rather, um, a roast, pot roast. My favorite was pork. Um, we had the, um, the beef roast. You know, I think Corey's favorite is pork too. No, I I get the feeling it's not. (laughs) I was, I was, uh, no, I, I, I grew up Jewish, when you, but I came, when you became a Christian. Did you start eating pork? No, well, so you were we, raised in an Orthodox home. We went to an Orthodox synagogue and we kept kosher in the house, but we had a little bit more wiggle room outside of the house. So did you bury the spoons? <laughs> we, well, we, no, I mean, we, we did observe, uh, are you talking about um, like what they touched milk and meat? Did you bury the spoons? We kept no, we kept separate uh, silverware. Okay. Did you? Yeah. For yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so yeah, but no, I, I 
I wasn't completely unfamiliar with pork. My, now, my dad later in life, uh, actually, after I became a Christian, started observing. He became more observant. So now he doesn't eat shrimp. He doesn't. He keeps kosher uh, inside, outside the home. So has anybody in your family become more religious when you as you become more or less religious? Like, have, have you noticed changes as you've grown? Closer? All of them. Yeah. All of them have become more religious. Um, hmm. And and I think that, you know you I was how many kids tell me again I, know I got two kids okay. uh, four grandkids but I, this is what I tell the younger people there is a reason you see old black men on church on Sunday hmm. regardless of how successful they are and in my church in Northern Virginia you've got the person that was in charge of all the purchasing for the submarine fleet in the Navy you've got the person that is the second in charge of purchasing for Amazon you've got the man that designed the listening systems and the predator drone teaches Bible school so there's some I of the most it's a fun church but there's some <laughs> of the most of, influential a lot of spies in your church <laughs> oh 15 of them but that's a story for another day um but they're very influential in society but they also understand that there's certain things in life we can't figure out hmm. um we've talked about them at night abortion unsolvable problem it doesn't matter which side you're on you can argue until the cows come in and a lot of the other different I see some cows coming in there's today. no the cows aren't coming in that's that's lunch um but no they're just social problems yeah. that you can't solve and, and you know i have a special needs grandson you know that's in the house with me right now if i didn't have faith i could not survive all of the crises that life throws at you later on in life Early on, it's easy. Hmm. You know, God, does she like me? Does she not like me? Does she pay attention to me as you get older? God, she Robin loves me. Said yes. Yeah. 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 As you get older, she said yes. And then she said, go, go to work. Yeah. Go to work <laughs> for the rest of your life. Um, that's interesting. So you feel like re religious. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that in your life. Your kids are older than my kids, Corey. But have you seen your kids? move in a, in a direction, a spiritual direction as they've gotten older? Oh, baby, this is a whole series of podcasts right here. Um, so as, as briefly as I can put it to you, um, you know, turning 50 about a week or so ago made me really look back at what I hate you. What we did. Your hair looks much better than mine, by the way. <laughs> so, I, re, I, I can't remember 50. And that should tell you the last time oh, I didn't man. color my hair. Oh, but that's beside the point. Um, but it, it, it caused me to look back on certain things. We, I think we got right. Uh, certain things we got wrong. Candidly. Um, I, I wish that we found a better church community early on. Um, I think that the church community and even more specifically the school that we had them in, it was a, uh, classical Christian education, but looking back, I don't think any of those classical Christian or even education to a certain degree was really their primary defining characteristics. Their primary uh, defining characteristics were first and foremost, uh, what we used to think of as conservative, but what, what now we would look at as right wing as distinct mm -hmm. from actual conservative, uh, either politically, socially, or theologically. And I think that just my all three of my kids have now developed an extreme allergy to anything that looks, smells or sounds like that. So mm -hmm. they're all I embrace it. I embrace them all to be truth seekers and to search. I certainly hope that they come to a Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, they observe our heritage uh, if they, you know, in the classical sense, uh, accept the Lord Jesus as their, you know, as their Lord and Savior. Great. I, I because that's I obviously came to a very difficult decision and, and that was a conclusion that I made. So I certainly hope that for my children. 
But one of the biggest mistakes that we made was putting through, putting them through that school. Um, and uh, I, I think they, yeah. But like I said, that's a whole other set of conversations. So we'll see when, when they're, by the time they're 30, the answer might be different, but right now in their late teens and one who's the oldest, who's 20. Um, no, just the opposite. Yeah. I think it comes later. I think it comes when they have kids Yeah, because there are those unsolvable problems. You know, the child falls and all of a sudden you're in the emergency room and you're praying. Mm-hmm. And you know what do they say? There are no there are no atheists in foxholes. There ain't no atheists in, in an emergency room either when you have kids. Yeah. So yeah, you become you become more spiritual as you get older because you have to be. There are just too, too many problems in life that you can't solve. You, you were talking about race. Race is one of those great unsolvable problems too. My philosophy on life is that God puts things in front of us and says, "You can't fix this, but I want to see if you'll try." You know, and, and for me, that has been the struggle of being an African-American, not the American side, the African side. You know, when you see how much we have and you see parts of Africa that have nothing, you have to ask yourself, if not for the fact that I was born on this side of the Atlantic, what would I be like? And it's, it's difficult to to live up to the there, but for the grace of God, go I. We say it. I don't think most people believe it. Hmm. That was heavy. I try. Yeah. yeah. That was <laughs> I wrote that down. That was actually written. No. And, and by the way, in the middle of the night, he can, he has these deep thoughts too. Maybe because so. they're yeah, in the middle of the night. <laughs> and, and Corey, when he gets older, we have to at 50 right now, your middle of the night moments are just starting. I'm just going to say wow. that. Wow. Yep. That was, well, <laughs> Something to look forward to. No, no, no. I, I, I know. I, I, so <laughs> it's just a question of do, do I, when I wake up in the middle of the night, is it late enough in the night for me to just, start my day, <laughs> you know, two 30 is about the over under. If I wake mm-hmm. up at two 30, I got a shot at falling asleep by three 30. If you get to sleep by three 30, you're good. Yeah. I'm if good. Not by three 30, four o'clock rolls around and it's downhill from there. You're up. Yeah. I might yeah. as well just hit Twitter and you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, a lot of great tweets going. No, I, I end up reading. I end up watching some great documentaries and yeah. Uh, yeah so what was it like to be, one of the first anchors on television. Did you feel a lot of pressure as, yeah. as one of the first African-American anchors in the country? Yep. And what city was that? Wheeling, West Virginia. I was the first black on the air in Wheeling. Um, so in your hometown? In my hometown. So and the pastor was watching. Everybody was watching. And even worse, everybody was watching thinking I made a lot of money. Ah. $4,695 a year was my first check. Wow. I was a janitor part-time and I cleaned the church part-time. My standard Saturday routine was I had my nice station jacket with the big channel seven on it. And I went into the law firm of mechanic and mechanic and closed all the blinds and went in and cleaned. Mm -hmm. One of the partners had a spit tune. I had to polish that on a weekly basis. And that was in order to make enough money to be able to afford my rent. So everybody thought that I was rich. You didn't live at home. You didn't take. No. They, did they offer you an opportunity to? No. You wouldn't have taken. No. Though. I was I was part of the 60s generation. I wanted to get out. Yeah. I wanted to get on my own. But I never will forget the lessons that you learn in life the hard way. First photographer, an Italian guy, I won't say his name, but um, we went to Benwood, West Virginia, which is considered to be one of those speed stops in, in Wheeling that you go south and you're going to get arrested, especially if you're black. 
And the photographer during the sheriff, our interview with the sheriff said, this is our new reporter here. He doesn't mind if, if I use the N-word around him. I hated the fact that he used the N-word around me. Mm. But um, and I hated working with him. Mm. And then when I got to Washington, he passed away. I get a call from his family saying, would you do they want you to deliver his eulogy? Could not believe it. His wife talked about how, how much he talked about me, how much he enjoyed me. So the journey of race in America is not as cut and dried as we think it is. You know, it's got a lot of nuances that you learn along the way, because if you had asked me whose eulogy I wouldn't have given, his would have been number one on the list. Yeah. But, to you know, to stand did you there, find something to say. Yeah, I did. Difficult? No, it wasn't, because the nicest thing about growing up in a shot in Brewtown, mm-hmm. you look past all that. Mm. You realize that at the end of the day, we're all going to die. And at the end of the day, the same, you know, ladies at the church that you once thought were bigots are the ones that are serving you dinner. Hmm. You know, so the nicest thing about working in television is it erases a lot of lines of division that society sets up. Classic example, where you're sitting right now, Michael Jackson was for nine days. So at the time when Michael Jackson was in the house, I I need to get my Everybody, yeah. Groove on. Everybody was looking for I don't him. have a groove to get on, though, so not like Michael. And we were at this function, and nobody knew where he was. Everybody was looking for Michael. And because he was at that, that was the beginning of his problems. What so, year was this? I can't remember. Mold. We'll get it before we leave. Okay. Um, but everybody was looking for him. And there was a function in Northwest Washington, D.C. And the who's who of Washington was there. Mm-hmm. And they were all talking about him like a dog. I mean, just, oh, my goodness, it's terrible what he's doing, blah, 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 blah. And then his reps came into the room and said, Mr. Jackson will be arriving in five minutes. If you'd like your picture taken, please line up. Stampede. Mm-hmm. Absolute stampede. Marion Barry, the former mayor at the time, number one in line. Other people who have served in presidential cabinets in line as well. So what you saw was hypocrisy on a global scale. Why did he stay? Because that Sunday, the minister did a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the sermon. And then I called the minister up the next day and I said, if somebody needs help, what would you do? You did the sermon on the Good Samaritan. He says, well, you heard my sermon. I said, okay, what if it's Michael Jackson? He says, is there anything about your life that you're going to make easy on me? So (laughs) we kept Michael a secret for a long time. And was this, this was while people were looking for him Mm -hmm. under... This is he came the to the allegations. Yeah, him? he came. Okay. The allegations were just starting to surface and he came as part of the African ambassadors. Wise were giving him an award and he was giving a concert, you know, but I think sometimes you're forced as a Christian to live up to all of the things that we say. And sometimes it's not easy. And that sometimes. was one of those one of those moments when it was say, a little bit yeah. more difficult than others. Yeah. Yeah. Investigative journalist tendencies didn't uh, come out and you wanted to, like, you know, get the scoop. Yeah. And my CBS neighbor across the lawn was looking for him. Yeah. That was kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't tell her. Didn't. Did you get any scoops? Yeah, I did. Um, There were things that I knew. Um, I could have told you before that he had a tremendous problem sleeping. Mm. And because he had a tremendous problem sleeping, he would roam the halls of the house at night, sleep during the day. And they had to give him things to get him, you know, to go to sleep. That I knew mm-hmm. early on. I think what you look at when you look at Michael is a tragic figure. And I think that's, you, we were talking about the difference between black and white society. That's a classic example. 
Blacks viewed him as a tragic figure. Whites viewed him as somebody that was was um, maybe who was a predator and, and yes, was a predator. Blacks looked at him from little Michael Jackson and said, look at what they did to him mm. by not having by not treating him differently from the time that he was little Michael Jackson to the time that he was grown. We saw him as an idiot savant that was a grown man trapped inside a child's body. White America saw him as a child predator. And those were the two. That was that that dichotomy. You think that that's true for me? I, I, I wasn't a fan and I don't remember like really watching things unfold until it got hairy. <laughs> let me let me let me uh, let me solve the problem for you this way. Michael Jackson is at your house, mm-hmm. spends nine days. At the end of nine days, he says, I'd love for the children to come visit me in Never Ooh. Never Land. Right. No. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen because a real parent says, no, it's not going to happen was not going to leave our children around Michael Jackson. We just weren't going to do it. But there are people in this country that would have died for that opportunity and would do so even today. The best thing about being black sometimes is being able to hold on to that moral compass that you have because you didn't have anything. I didn't see him as any different than if your cousin who had spent time in jail, of which I had several, came and was with you for the rest of the summer because the family reunion was coming up. Do we kick him out? No, we welcome him back in. It is the good Samaritan. We practice what we preach. Hmm. Even if it's Michael Jackson. Jess, I, I, I think our life experience and the family experience, the family's lived experience, especially to the degree that, we share those stories with our family, it, it colors how we see events taking place now. For example, uh, you know, growing up uh, with my grandparents, uh, especially as I became a young man and spent time with them alone and heard those stories about Baba, my grandmother and her family coming over from Russia, the pogroms, the injustices that they'd suffered, um, and starting out in America, which we just retold a few months ago, it was the 100 year anniversary of our family's boat landing on Ellis Island, um, is something that really, uh, it, the lens through which I see the immigration debate, for example, is gonna be different because mm-hmm. of that, my family's lived experience. And now also because of the fact that I believe in, in the Bible. Uh, and I can't get from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 without reading a lot about how we should see the the quote unquote foreigner among us, um, our, our neighbors, um, you know, so yeah, that, so as it pertains to Michael Jackson, I was also thinking of, um, how one of my best friends is a fellow named Kevin, Kevin Wright, um, uh, African-American, uh, and, you know, even, even like just the way that he opened my eyes to how he was seeing that uh, mm-hmm. that whole event as it was taking place, and then the later the trial and everything, um, and it was good. It was edifying. I realized that I have a blind spot. Um, that having good friends and going through life with good friends who have a different life experience and their families' lived experience is really helpful uh, if we want to figure out how to live together better. You know? Yeah, you can see. You can see. You can see the crime, you can see the criminal, but you can also see the person. I think that we're sometimes better at keeping them all separate. 
Um, so it's, it's not a moral judgment as to what he did. I know what he did. I'm a journalist. I know exactly what he did. Um, but I also know that here was a father that had, you know, all three of his children roam in the house. And I never will forget what he said when we talked to him. Um, you know, most of the time we were, we were kept away from our own house. But when we did talk, he said he wandered the house at night and he loved the pictures of the family. Hmm. And you could tell this was a this was somebody that didn't have that. And we were sitting in Carabas. The family was sitting in Carabas uh, the night he arrived. And I said, think about what's going on and never forget this teachable moment. We're here holding on to a secret that everybody would like to have and laughing and joking. He is a prisoner in our own house. Which side of the coin do you want to be on? So we tried to use it as a teachable moment, not necessarily a judgmental moment, but an indication that everything that you think, what do they say? Everything that glitters is not gold. Mm -hmm. That was a classic example. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're, you're someone who is certainly respected by colleagues and, and you could see sometimes you go on other shows on BNC and I see there's a certain reverence even by up and coming journalists. How different is the climate now than when you first became a reporter? Wow. We were journalists. Now we have a lot of people that are entertainers. We have people that want to have social media following. We were talking, we were laughing about that. Um, I wanted to be the best damn journalist I could be. And as a result, I went to the Klan rallies. I did the Michael Jackson thing. I did the CIA. I mean, if there was a bar that was set, think about the Olympics. If there's a world record, then people like Dan Rather and Mike Wallace held that world record. I wanted to beat that record. I was that competitive. So I wanted to be the journalist journalist. And I got an opportunity to do that during my 22 years in Washington during my first stint. I think that's what they miss is the fact that you can be a journalist, but I also wanted to do something else. And this is, this is important for this show. I wanted to make sure that I was in church on Sunday. I wanted to make sure that I was with my family in church on Sunday. I wanted to make sure that I didn't get caught drunk driving and that I did not get caught drugging. Mm -hmm. I wanted to not only be a good journalistic mm -hmm. example for black America. I also wanted to make sure that the legacy that I followed, I didn't embarrass black Americans as a father. And, and that was as a particularly Christian. challenging yes. in those years. Very challenging. First stint, because that was the, the that was a shot in the brew. epidemic. That was the it was cocaine. It was it was in, beer. In it was wine. It was everything. Yeah. And there and, was and that some pressure of our African-American local anchors. Well, yeah. fell pretty hard into that. A lot of African-American anchors fell into that. It was a dangerous time. Um, but I, those were the boundaries that I set for myself. Um, early on, because I did not want to be I did not want to be the person on the evening news because that's the benefit of growing too. you know, like, could have been the lead story. It wouldn't have just passed it no. lightly. But that's the that's the benefit of being the first black on the air. Mm. If I had messed it up, if I had messed <laughs> it up, there would not have been another that would follow. So it was pressure in one sense. But in another sense, it was almost like pressure on a lot of pole. It turned you into something that you wanted to be as opposed to something that you started out as. Made you better. Made you better. Yeah, it did. It. Um, I always lived in fear of having to go back. Wheeling, West Virginia, small town America is like crabs in a barrel. They, if you're black, they, they always talk about how they want you to succeed, but they can't wait for you to fail. Mm -hmm. 
And if you fail, then you come back home and they say, I knew he wasn't going to make it. Um, and it doesn't matter how high up you get. If you get way up there, then they talk about, well, he had that big house, he had this car, blah, 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 blah. If he'd have saved his money, if he'd put his money away in a simple money market, if I had that money, I could have done yada, yada, yada. Um, a lot of smack. Yeah, it's a lot of smack. But that's the way it is. People root for you to fail more than they root, you know, cheer you on. But that's also that impetus that keeps pushing you forward. So in my case, that's how I survived that, that time period was I did not want to go back to wheeling as a failure. Did you feel like you got criticized or pressured in the reverse, though, because you were sort of not engaging in the, the social life of the time? No. Um, yeah. And you got it from both sides. Um, one side didn't understand what you were going through. So the side that didn't understand what you were going through didn't realize my uncle, one time I go back to the family reunion and he says, you know, the next time you're with the president, tell him the little guys up here are hurting. Yeah. I wasn't part of the Washington press corps because it was Harvard. It was Yale, it was Princeton and Purdue. Strangely, I'd been accepted into all of those schools, but because I was from West Virginia, I could not afford to go. So you get the scholarship, but you can't afford it even with the financial aid. So you're not part of that Washington elite in one sense. So you don't fit in here. You don't fit in there. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it was difficult. I think we have something in common with you in that way though. Cause that's, I think that's part of, mm -hmm. not that my experience is anywhere close to your experience or exact, but that idea of having a foot in multiple right. places gives you empathy. Mm -hmm and uh, an ear to hear the differences and adapt to the differences and communication style. And we talked about that at night. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it makes you better. What I wrote about in crossing the divide and it some people don't better. have that orientation and it's, and it's, it's so hard, but it's such a gift really ultimately. How I have you given that to your kids? I mean, they, they've had privileges that you didn't have. What it's funny. It's funny you bring that up, but travel. Mm. Travel allows you to be able to view other people through a different lens, but it's not just traveling on the anchor salary. It's also traveling on the missionary salary. And I think that the There's greatest, a missionary salary? yeah, there is a missionary salary. It's the one that's free. Um, <laughs> so I remember, you know, what are the greatest lessons I've learned documentary class that I took to Haiti um, documentary shoot in Liberia, West Africa, raising my girls and I, when they were in their, um, formative years, the, I just returned from Liberia doing a documentary shoot and we held a fundraiser for the first lady of Liberia. Hmm. Um, and she said, I'll take, you know, whatever you can help me with. And we found out that the schools needed books. Well, Taylor and Mac, my two daughters at that age decided that they were going to find books for Liberia. So, we thought we were going to be able to collect about a thousand books. I sent a letter to Belle Whelan, who was a friend, uh, secretary of education. Um, and she was um, working for Mark Warner, convinced Mark Warner to send a letter to all the school systems in Virginia for us to use, have their use surplus books. Hmm. My girls during those years collected 500,000 books. Ooh, wow. So, but this is the, this is the, that's a big postal bill. This is the fish in the low story. Mm. They started out trying to raise money because I bought each of them a bracelet home, a little leather bracelet home from Liberia. There were two. So then they said, everybody in school loved the bracelets. If you can get more of them, we'll sell them. So there was a little cobbler in Liberia that was sending them back with Liberians in suitcases. And they sold $1,000 worth of bracelets. The kids would give up their lunch money at Middleburg Academy to help the kids in Liberia. 
So that was the check that was presented to the first lady of Liberia, which led to the book drive, mm. which led to the 500,000 books, which led to the problem of where do you store 500,000 books, which led to two shipping companies that said, we'll ship them for free, which led to seven 48-foot containers winding up in the port of Liberia and two pages. Always get choked up about this. Two pages. Didn't make it. That's all. Wow. Two pages. Did not make it to the classroom. A little boy running after the book, after the little yellow school bus. And if you remember the, the little books that we read as kids and the whiff of smoke behind the school bus and the little boy running after it. And I never will forget that page because that was one of two pages that did not make it. Everything else made it That's there. Remarkable. So people say, what is the biggest? Why are you religious? I've seen miracles. Yeah, that was the biggest, you know, large and small seen miracles. That was the big one. That's a story I hadn't heard yet. It's mm -hmm. pretty fantastic. Fantastic. I never get through it. Never have been able to get through that. that yet. <laughs> I need my tissue. Yep. I didn't know I needed my tissue box for you today, yep. though. But that's the one. That's the one that always gets me. Getting a um, little verklempt. Verklempt. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, I, take it into today. You're telling great stories today um, on DC Today. Uh, earlier this year in discussing the new show um, that you host on BNC, you described how your show offers a new perspective on what's happening in DC. Can mm -hmm. you tell us how the lens of DC today is different from other news programs? Sure. January 6th, people storm the Capitol. Uh, the US attorney comes out, the FBI comes out and they say that six of those groups are white supremacist groups. If they were white supremacists, were they there for political reasons or were they there for social reasons? And if they were there for social reasons, then what was the social reason? They were upset about black people. They didn't call the white cops racial names and slurs. Mm. They called the black cops the N-word. So when you separate yourself and you put it under that different lens, you see a different attack on the Capitol. Demographically, America is changing. And BNC is important for that reason, to give a voice to people to understand exactly what we talk about when we were working overnight at Fox. The races aren't as different as people would like them to believe. Our cultural experiences are different, but we laugh at the same things. We cry at some of the same things. Um, we look at each other's shared histories and we say, thank God that didn't happen to me or that shouldn't have happened to that person. There are good people in the world and there are bad people in the world. There are good white people in the world and good black people in the world. BNC gives us the opportunity as blacks to be able to say, this is what we see and this is why it hurt. And I don't think necessarily that they heard that. This is a story of BNC. Marion Barry on, on January 19th gets arrested for smoking crack inside the Vista Hotel. On January 6th, they stormed the insurrection. They stormed the Capitol. I was there for both. Mm. So was Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland was the U.S. attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney at the time who prosecuted Marion Barry. Oh, I had no idea. So as an African-American <clears throat> journalist at BNC, I say, this is what you did. In 1990, are you going to be the same level of aggressive with the former president in 2020? That's the difference between the lens of BNC. I have so many places to go with that. Mm -hmm. We could be here all day. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Why are you making that? So. OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. 
I'm not making as direct of a connection. Yeah, I'm making. So I'm hearing the Marion Barry example is that was one of the most painful. That was one of the most painful chapters in Washington history. Yeah, that's because because in a racial because of no, no, because you saw because imagine it doesn't matter whether you're like I covered Marion Barry as aggressively as anybody. And he was guilty. But we knew that. Everybody knew that. Everybody in black America knew that Marion Barry was hooked on drugs. We knew that. Mm-hmm. But to see the humiliation of him in a hotel room, smoking crack on a grainy video set up by a woman and then arrested at his home that night and then going through the trial and all of everything that followed was one of the most humiliating experiences in this town. Was it a legitimate story? Yes. Was it a legitimate reason to go after him? Yes. But was it a was it a sledgehammer to swat a fly, as his attorney said? Yes. But that was history. That became history of D.C. So now you have to ask yourself, is he using the same lens and going after the former president? Did the former president on the National Mall say we have to go back and take our country? Yes. Did they storm the Capitol? Yes. Did they beat the crap out of the cops? Yes. Did they try and kill people if they could have gotten hold of them? Yes. Why is he not being charged with insurrection and sedition? If he had been black, if Donald Trump had been black, you cannot tell me that those charges wouldn't have been on the table by Merrick Garland before and after 1990, 2020. Same person. Hmm. I think that's I think that's fair to say. I mean, but but the the jury is still out, so to speak. You know, I, I because we don't know. We don't know what the final chapter is. Yeah, we don't know. And I think it's I think it's a it's a big hurdle. Um, it's a big lift. And some of the things that they're doing right now, like with uh, Tom Barrack, uh, some of the ways that they're mm-hmm. um, Weisselberger, mm-hmm. uh, they're, it now looks like they're going to prosecute Weisselberger's son in order to have more leverage over Weissel. I think this is a long play. I, th- I think it's more of a chess match um, to get to the point where they have enough of a case because p- prosecuting a former president, even though it's Donald freaking Trump, not my favorite, uh, if you can't tell, um, is is a big lift and, and you need to have all of your ducks in a row. It, um, if, you, if you're well, gonna- and The video does it, the video shows him saying things Right. But it, it, I, I still feel like the line is not as clear between what he said and what happened as it's not just somebody committing a crime. I mean, this we're going on skeptical. Look, this is my skeptical. This is my this is my this is when when Mike Wallace would look at the person and say, continue, because I want to see if you're going to continue digging this hole for yourself. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Tell me tell me why I'm wrong. So it's not just did. what he said at the at the at the um. The, the, the rally. It's I'm not just what he him. said there. Yeah, I'm trying to point to him. <laughs> there you so, go. So let's yeah. see. Is it is it the. And attorney? I don't dispute the, the the thing you said about if he was black, it would have been. In different. the attorney general. December 27th on the Justice call. Department. Yeah. And the phone call to Georgia saying if you can find eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes because he lost by eleven thousand seven hundred and seventy nine votes. Just yeah. one more. I think he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was the Michigan thing. There was the Arizona thing. There's the recount. There's the fact that he has yet to concede defeat. There was the call to but that's Ukraine. All, that, that, that's all having to do with whether or not he accepted the election results. So some of that, that has that, that would go to, to, to those set of facts. But what, You're what saying, was, you have take, to, I mean, he didn't say go to the Capitol 
and overturned the election. I know. And his former attorney said, and remember, I covered organized crime. Organized crime bosses don't say, you know, go out and whack Joey so-and-so. They say, if he doesn't come home tonight, it would be a shame. Did he have to say? He said, follow me. And And, they went. And earlier in December, uh, I think it was December 12th, right around there, he tweeted, uh, January 6th, it's going to be huge. You know, he, he was saying in so many, and that's just the stuff that we know about. You know, more and more stuff is coming out on based on great reporting, but also based on all these other testimonies. Uh, so I, I just want to see it nailed shut. I want to see I want to see the dots completely connected because you're always going to have crazies. So there was a flood. Radio report says it's going to be the storm of the century. The guy's sitting there and he's saying, oh, it's not going to, it's not going to affect me because I'm a Christian and God would never do anything to me. <laughs> I no, yeah. no, I know this story. <laughs> yeah. So then all of a sudden the water starts to rise and they come and he says, oh, it's all the way up to the first floor of the house. And the rowboat comes and the people say, get out of the house because it's the storm of the century. You're going to die. You're going to drown. And he said, no, I'm not going to drown because I'm a Christian. God is going to protect me. Comes all the way up to the second floor. He's on the roof and the helicopter comes. And they're saying, get out, get on the helicopter. He says, no, the water's going to recede. God is going to protect me because I'm a Christian. He dies. So he gets to heaven. Mm-hmm. And he says, God, how come you didn't protect me? And God says, because I told you on the radio, I sent the boat. I sent the helicopter. How many more things do you <laughs> need to hear before the dots all of a sudden start to connect themselves? You think that he was perfectly OK with everything that happened on January 6th? Oh, yeah, that's that other thing. He didn't try and stop it. Didn't try to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the old president, commander in chief, charge of the National Guard, military, protecting Congress. Just saying, this is my skeptical look. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> yeah, we're disagreeing. Right? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Dell got everything right except for one thing in, the, in, the, in that last set of comments. God definitely has a Yiddish accent. <laughs> yes, sir. I sent you the I sent you a boat. You know, my God, why did you say to me? Oh, I said the helicopter. <laughs> That's pretty good. I think we should clip out. Dell does Yiddish. <laughs> we should definitely. Dell grows out. up in West Virginia, right? It's, he also does Greek. It's the Wheeling. It's the Wheeling West yeah, he Virginia. He does Greek and he does Italian too. You know, okay. about that. Run together. Um, yeah, I. I, I know I'm in the minority here in this this group, but I'm I'm continuing to be uh, waiting and watching as we see how they connect the dots. But I think the point that you made at the beginning of this was that he wouldn't Donald Trump would never have gotten the benefit of the doubt had his skin been right. a different color. Mm. And that Merrick and Garland did treat difficult to argue. We you're looking at the same person involved in both cases. And in one case, he was uber aggressive. You know, you can't argue that setting up Merrick a form. Garland. Yeah, with Merrick Garland. And that was my point, was that African-Americans want the same level of aggressiveness. Uh, a, a old black lady asked me during Marion Barry, she said, are you going to be as aggressive with the white guys you were with, with Marion Barry? And I said, yes. And now that that question haunts me because I find myself having to ask the same questions, hmm. you know, and I was hard on Marion Barry. Oh, that's a different experience. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have had the experience of growing up in West Virginia. Mm. That is one of the best things that ever happened to me. And one of the worst things that ever happened to me. You know, it's the boat. Yeah. God sends a boat. Now, going back to journalism as a vocation, uh, the fourth estate, um, Mm -hmm. it's been under attack more than ever in my lifetime over the last five years. 
Um, not, not only that, the disinformation has been weaponized to a degree that I don't think this country has seen since arguably the 1850s. Do you think good journalism is enough of an antidote for these attacks and the disease of disinformation that started that started, uh, you could say, in the late 80s uh, with the emergence of Rush Limbaugh? perfected by Trump. Uh, I, I was listening to um, Jonathan Roush. I can't wait to get his book the way he frames it, that the Trump perfected the art of dominating, disorienting and demoralizing an entire electorate is good journalism enough of an antidote to fight against that. Sure. Don Hewitt said it best. The worst thing that ever happened to television news was ratings. When 60 Minutes started developing ratings, everybody said, what a great news magazine this is. And then they had to come up with a formulate way of making it work. One hard hitting piece, one entertainment piece, one big name celebrity every week on 60 Minutes ever since then has been done like that. But it started out being a news magazine where they were investigative reporters. One of the best pieces I ever did as an investigative reporter. Crickets. There was a, a Nazi living in the suburbs of Bethesda. Theodore Benziger was, came to the United States as part of Project Paperclip. And I found him. I tracked him down. I had his medals. of uh, the, He had the Iron Cross. I had his papers mm. from. He was the one that did the, the freezing and the high altitude experiments on prisoners of war, rest, you know, in, in uh, concentration camps. I was so proud of that story absolutely enthralled with that story. The next day I came in after the story aired, the ratings were terrible. Mm. So, yeah, but people just didn't like it. What do you mean people didn't like it? I don't give a damn if they liked it or not. It was a story that had to be told. When ratings start to dictate what you do, the Sean Hannity's of the world, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world start to succeed because then they can say. We get a few progressive hosts in there, too. The Rachel Maddow's of the world. Don't talk about Rachel. Um, (laughs) Rachel hasn't done anything wrong. And I think, you know, la, 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 la. I'm not hearing this. But when ratings become the barometer. I know you and Rachel were so tight, though. She's smart. When, she is smart. Yeah. You're not going to get an argument. What I like about what BNC is doing is you're, you're creating a space for some of the very hot racial debates and you're bringing on guests within the black community that have different vantage points that we often don't hear from because we have the token, pardon me for using the word token, but the token black analyst who's always mm-hmm. progressive and the token white woman who looks like me and is conservative. But now the flip <laughs> side, but now the flip side of that. What's the day? What, how do we get here? We got here by not listening to the other side. So I love working for BNC because it allows me to have that voice. But I also recognize the demographic shift means that if you're a non-white in this country, you're rising up. If you're white in this country, you're rising down. The white person in this country wants to have the dialogue too. Who best to have the dialogue about being a minority than a minority? So if we don't bring white voices into BNC, we will fail too. And you are. I mean, yeah. I'm, I've been, I, I, you've allowed me to be on your program and right. be on regularly. And I see that. And I, it, it's ironic that you see, in some ways it's ironic that, that BNC is more open to that than, than yeah. white channels, if you will, were to, to, to integrating. And, and I still think the white channels are still yes. hesitant. You're still seeing the New York, New Yorkization of what you're not seeing black America. You're seeing what New York thinks black America wants, what it looks like. All right. I want to move the conversation since you gave me a springboard to the subject of wokeism. Yeah, good. 
You guys, you, you at BNC, are you at, at, would you have a whole YouTube channel dedicated to critical race theory? You're, you're talking about it extensively. Mm -hmm. You have your own thoughts on wokeism. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't done a segment on wokeism before, um, but I would love to have you talk about how you define it and respond to, you know, this, I feel like James Carville kind of opened the box of worms when he said, you know, we have a problem with woke culture, that it's a problem in the Democratic Party. It's not a problem in the Democrat. It's a problem in society. I mean, when you're afraid to what do I enjoy about being on BNC? Saying what I want to say. Mm-hmm. What am I afraid of it on being on BNC? Saying what I want to say. We can't talk anymore without being afraid of what we say. I literally had a LGBTQ person on the air the other day cracking up because I said, do you realize that LGBTQ is an anchor's nightmare? And he said, why? What do you, you know, why don't you like us? I said, it's not that I don't like you. I can't say, say it. It. <laughs> it was five times in the plus. same. Don't forget se- the plus. Doug. That's the thing that got me. <laughs> it was somebody, one of my, one of my writers wrote LGBTQ plus five times. And in the script? In the script. And my producer is gay. Oh, and I said, you guys are killing me here. And he just started laughing. And the person that was the guest started laughing. But that's the woke culture thing. Um, sooner or later, sometimes we just have to chill. And woke <laughs> culture fits into the category of just, that's what Carville's saying. Take a breath. Don't look at what they say. Look at the intent behind what they said. I think that one of the things that I, who was one of my best sources? A Klan Grand Dragon. Every time he come to Washington, pick up the phone and call me. Why did I listen to him all the time? Because I wanted to know what he thought. Yeah. So can't judge a book by its cover. Wow. You have put that to the test in ways I'm not sure I have. No. <laughs> but that's the problem with woke culture. If we... <clears throat> If we pigeonhole people because they say something that we don't like, if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you that as a married man, I have said the dumbest damn things that anybody could ever say every day of the week (laughs) to the extent that I stopped saying anything. I mean, there was a period in our marriage when I wouldn't say anything because chances are she was going to to say to anybody. You know, I've I can't always, believe you ever shut up. Oh, no, no. no. I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. No, we got to bring in the witnesses. No, there was a time <laughs> when I thought I am because because people. You'll say something if you if you're passionate about what you mean and what you believe, you're going to offend somebody sooner or later. Woke culture makes us believe that everybody that we don't agree with is a bad person. And that's not true. Yeah, I, I feel like there's less safe. It's, it's more difficult to be genuinely curious in this environment because you care. I do. I, I'm, I, I, from my point of view, I'm asking because I genuinely want to know and I genuinely understand I'm ignorant about some things and I would like to be less ignorant because nobody can know everything. But, but if you don't have a safe place to ask, which you have given me, but not everybody does give yeah. that to each other, then it's then you can't advance. You can't advance as a culture to be more understanding if there are that many walls about how you talk about it. When Thurgood Marshall retired. I never will forget. <laughs> Journalists ask questions and we think we know the answers to them. So I asked Thurgood, I said, you know, my educated broadcaster voice, why have you chosen now to retire? He says, because I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't the answer I was looking for, but it was the answer that was true. Yeah. He was tired. You know, we want people to, to give us answers that we think 
reflect what we want to hear as opposed to necessarily listening to what they say. If you're a person that is offended by woke, woke culture, that simply means you're not listening to what they have to say. Don't ask a question if you want to dictate the answer, because that's not asking a question. That's listening to yourself on a feedback loop. And I, I don't do that. I, I want to be sensitive. Good. That was good. Well, can I say that again with more emphasis? <laughs> do you want to be sensitive about Corey? No, I want to be sensitive and I want to be compassionate, but I don't feel I, I don't understand what the transcendent values that I should understand are, you know, like as a Christian, I defer to the authority of scripture, for example. And mm -hmm. listen, I understand that that not everybody is is a Christian or Jewish, that there's others who defer to um, transcendent wisdom. People. Yeah, the other people. No, no, no. Other religions, other philosophies, but, but there are these values to defer to um, that I can understand and see where there's common ground. Whereas I think that one of the issues I have with is to use the phrase woke culture um, is that I don't know what that is. I, I don't know if there is anything transcendent. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so you just asked, you just answered the question. Yeah. Nobody does. Yeah. Much more succinctly than you did, Del. Yes. <laughs> but they keep coming up with these different phrases. That's well, what I meant. The, the Am I Afro-American? Am I black? Am I Jesus? Who in the hell does all of this? Who has time to do that? Well, I think this is something we talked about last week a little bit with Bill Crystal too, was this idea that we have, everybody needs to be a hyphenated American these days. You're a gay American, you're a straight American, you're a black American, you're a brown American, whatever. You, you have some identity that supersedes your Americanness, which makes us actually less unified. And it's that hyphen, that's that need for being distinct from just being an American that I feel like is part of what's going on with the discussion around. Do you not agree? No, I do. And, and I think that you had you didn't have your skeptical face on no, you had wasn't. your contemplative face on when i was young there were 260 million americans i think we have 100 300 more. yeah we have 100 333 more. million people now right the average life expectancy in the united states at the turn of the century the turn of the 19th century was 47 years of age i think it was maybe 47 or 57 really? we're living a lot longer we're yeah. doubling it we're living longer and there are a lot more of us i think that part of what you're seeing is that desire among people just to be different and that's why they hyphenate themselves you know in other words but we all want that sure but the collective is getting bigger you know the nicest thing about growing up in george washington's time was Hell, there weren't that many people, you know, had about as many people in South Dakota in, as he did. In, yeah, in this country. Yeah. yeah. So it's like the father of our country. That's fine. You know, there was not Delaware. There was not, you know, all of the different places. Well, there was a Delaware. But all of the different places that we think about in terms of America, it was small. Yeah. But as we get more and more compact and there are more people, people starve to get attention. And that's the problem is, is that. Well, I don't mind. Like, I love the rich cultural diversity of sure. our country and the differences. Um I don't like that 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 some of us use the differences to give ourselves a reason not to relate to other people. And and nobody's perfect at it. We're all more comfortable around people that are like us than not. Have you always been this sensitive? I'm I, you know, people do not describe me that way. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's the that's here's the problem. I'm just fascinated by the differences and interested in it. So so it's I, I wind up 
subconsciously being around the differences inherently because I just like, I like to and you fit And you and you do it and you fit in and you're well. And you but like other people can't. Yeah, you like crossing the divide. I do. You're I crossing. Do. Uh, yeah, which would be a good time for the book promo right now. Yes. Crossing okay. the divide. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, I did want to ask about critical race theory sure. in Loudoun County because you live in Loudoun County. I do. Um, Virginia, which is a rural, increasingly less rural enclave of the Washington, D.C. suburbs and is ground zero in many ways nationally mm-hmm. for the debate in the schools about critical race theory. Um, which is a buzzword, but it's not defined the same across the people that make it a buzzword. And I think it's, I think it's an important conversation to have on black news channel in particular to hear, okay, what are all the different ways to look at what this means and how it can, um, how it can or should be discussed in public life or in schools in particular. So Tom Cotton, the Senator, the Senator from Arkansas just put in, and it passed legislation, mm-hmm. an amendment in the uh, in, in the infrastructure bill to remove federal funding from CRT education in schools across the country. Uh, to that, you say what? Just teach history. Just teach history. Everybody's history. Everybody's history. Stop putting a label on it. Um, so I mean, it, think about how because the- did that indicate we haven't been as a society? No, we haven't. We haven't. Um, did and how I, many people's histories have we not been including? Did I know about the Carlisle Indian Reservations? No, I didn't. Um, I still don't. No. Well, Carlisle what happened Indian was they, they took um, Native Americans off the reservations and they put them in different places across the United States, one of which was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and tried oh. to breed the Indian out of them in the same sense as the rabbit hole fences in, in Australia, you know, trying to breed the aborigines. Where do we come up with this stuff? Like, seriously? Well, I think that this is not a perfect nation. And I think no. that whenever we try to pigeonhole people and we give it a title like critical race theory, did I know everything that happened in Black Wall Street? No, I didn't. Um, I knew some of it, but I didn't know how bad it was. So when we did the Juneteenth celebrations and we looked at Black Wall Street and the fact that 300 people were massacred Tulsa. in Tulsa. Tulsa. If you don't know that, do you understand the history of Oklahoma? No, you don't. So I didn't even know that the Oatland plantation is right up the street. Right. And when you see Oatland Street, in Leesburg, it's a reference to the big plantation out here. Franklin Farms was Franklin and Armistead, the largest slave traders on the East Coast, which was Alexandria, Virginia. So you go to the slave museum in Alexandria and you understand exactly who they are. I lived in Franklin Farm. I didn't know at the time that's who the Franklin was. They did the same thing with the Trail of Tears with with um, slaves that happened with Indians. Yeah. Yeah. So they marched them. The growing season in Virginia and Maryland was too short. So in order to make the slaves more profitable, they said, we can't use them up here anymore. So they marched them down to Louisiana and they sold them off. Um, How, I guess the question that I would say as a, a mother of young kids, I don't object to teaching the, teaching these histories, but I also want my kids to have a sense of how to navigate what those histories mean to them as Americans now, and as Mm -hmm. you know, both of my kids happen to be white kids, they're girls. How did, how did, what are they supposed to take away from that? Are they supposed to think of themselves as oppressors? I mean, that's, that is a concern among white parents that are concerned about CRT. They will say, I I don't want my kid to be, have to decide whether they're an oppressor or an oppressed when they're in grade school. 
Then have the dialogue. Um, my son-in-law is German. His, his um, father was white. His mother's Liberian. Do I equate him with the Nazis? No, I don't. He's German. He's from Germany, but he is not the Nazis. Do I understand everything that I need to know about, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany? Fortunately for me, Jewish Americans, to make sure that we don't forget. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. It's not that we condemn everybody from Germany. We still welcome Angela Merkel to the White House. We don't say stop. Yeah. You know, um, well, but unless you're DJT. Unless you're DJT. Yeah. But what we do is <clears throat> we teach history from the perspective of understanding this is what happened. And then you get to make your own decisions. So I don't know that we always have to be guardians of history. History is what it is. So putting a title on a critical race theory, Tom Cotton, stop. Mm. Yeah. Dumb. Yeah. And that's just that's political theater. Uh, You know, David French had a really great prism through which to maybe think of this more rationally. Um, And that he, he compared it to a new CEO of a company that has, for example, been poisoning water, uh, dumping all kinds of poison into, uh, you know, local water uh, sources. Now, that can come Michigan. out. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, Sounds like Flint, Michigan. Yeah, I mean, so that can come out. And yeah. the individuals who are responsible for those practices uh, yes, they're guilty. Now, if the company fires that CEO and then a new CEO comes in, that individual new CEO isn't necessarily guilty, but the institution still is, the institution that, still the C- is. that the CEO is responsible for rectifying. Right. So it's, it's not a, it's not an exact parallel, but listen, you know, the original sin of America, starting in 1619, we, we started enslaving people and it, it went on for you know, many decades. Um, Let me, let me, let me issue this challenge to Tom Cotton and all of those who are upset about critical race theory. Take it upon yourself to teach a better version of history and to open the dialogue and to have the conversation that we're happening right now, that we're having right now, so that you can say everything about everything and recognize that you're not responsible for what happened to the native Americans, but you can make sure that it doesn't happen again. You're not responsible for enslaving African-Americans, but you can make sure that it never happens again. We don't have to run from history. We should embrace history. The, here's the greatest thing about this country is that it is the only country on the face of the planet that you can come from someplace else and call yourself American. If I go to Germany, I cannot be a German. I cannot be an Italian. I cannot be a French person. I can be an American, though, if I come from France or if I come from Germany. We should embrace that as opposed to using critical race theory as a wedge issue. We should teach everybody's history as much as we can. You know, one of the things I think we forget about critical race theory, you know what kids hate when they're young? History. <laughs> Do we really think that they're paying? You know, I see the school board and the people. Oh, stop it! Stop it! You oh, know what yeah, the kids are doing right now? Out here have gotten. Yeah, the, the kids are saying, "Oh God, I just some YouTube sometimes." I hope it's I don't have to study history. You know, <laughs> oh God, they want me to study the sixteen nineteen project. Uh, you know, how much did I enjoy the War of eighteen twelve when I was in school? <laughs> as much as I enjoyed West Virginia history. Can we teach the racial the, the sins of our racial past in this country? And still acknowledge that the American experiment has the best chance of healing these divides than any other 
system. Sure, because the census told you a year ago that the vast majority of children being born in this country are biracial. So when you teach critical race theory and you talk about slavery, for instance, or the 1619 Project, remember, you might have a child whose father is white and his mother is black. So which one is he going to hate? Neither of them. But he is going to understand the history. The best thing about this country is that it does melt. The worst thing about this country is every time we go through this, it's difficult. We didn't even get to George Floyd. George Floyd is probably the biggest. George Floyd is the biggest learning curve in the history of this country as far as police and as far as race relations are concerned it convinced white america what black america has been saying for decades we're treated differently okay devil's advocate Mm -hmm. very imperfect individual to have that doesn't matter um they didn't know that at the time did not know that at the time here's what happens and this is why because we only know about the drugs in the system after the fact but you're paying attention to the drugs in the system white woman walks into a grocery store gives the grocer a counterfeit $20 bill, walks out. The grocer says, that's a counterfeit $20 bill. They knock on the door and they say, uh, hey, excuse me, Ms. Stone, did you know that this, this 20 is not good? Do you have another one in your purse? Or you might want to take that down to the, to oh, the bank. I get the benefit of the doubt. You get the benefit of the doubt. So that's the, key. that's the key. You went all the way to the drugs. I was at the $20 bill. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between being black and white in America. Corey? Uh, no, I, I, I'm not even going to. No, I, I, I see what you're saying, and, I, and I'm glad to uh, get to know you uh, for that very reason, because, again, I have blind spots and I don't know what those blind spots, except to the degree that I can be in communion uh, with individuals like like you who have a different life experience. Uh, that Did can, I come across like complete like now I feel like I come like the way I ask, do I come across like a complete Pollyanna, though? Oh, not when you do, because I know because I got to live on both sides of the coin. So you ask me, why do I have my press credentials on all the time? Because and it's not a white black thing, by the way, if a cop pulls you over, the cop sees somebody black and they assume in this county, uh, member of the Washington football team, a drug dealer, but not necessarily the broadcaster. They see the broadcaster say, oh, okay, how are you? I just don't have time for the argument anymore. Mm-hmm. But no, our perceptions of race when it comes to law enforcement are terrible. Mm-hmm. We have two policing systems in this country, and it does date back to the fugitive slave laws. And, and there are places where we still view an African-American who gets picked up as being guilty before he is innocent. We view the white lady in the car as being Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Jones. Did you know you were speeding? Yes, she knew she was speeding. She does it every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's the blind spot that we have. And George Floyd brought that to light. That wound up being something America needed. I needed it. Yeah. Thank you. I did, too, because I had forgotten how bad it was in inner city regions. Even I had forgotten how bad it was. So when you live out in the suburbs, you forget this is what people go through every day of their lives. Hmm. What's your other gotcha? I, I just I didn't realize it. Yeah, it's amazing to me how how you learned through that experience too. That there was something sure. to offer. Did you? How emotional was it for you to cover George Floyd? Especially covering the six. You know, you were coming up through the sixties. You covered. I know you've talked about covering Klan rallies. It was frustrating. Was any part of you, yeah. Did you think it was any part of it was behind you, and you yeah. still couldn't get it behind That's you? That's what was frustrating. What was frustrating is realizing that 
In the same sense that in the 60s, we realized that it wasn't just the civil rights movement in the South. There was a movement in, in the North and the South and in Cleveland and Detroit. And then you go out to California where Corey is. It's a different movement out there. You realize that there were probably about six different civil rights movements. And then it took almost a decade before we understood them. The George Floyd thing convinced me that there are pockets of America that still view people the same way that we saw um, crack addicts and, and others in Washington, D.C. back in the 1980s being treated, yeah. that the cops were still playing bad boys, bad boys in the back of their mind whenever they pulled up on a car and they didn't see the person that might have been the wealthy industrialist as opposed to the person that they thought was dealing crack, that we still have a, stere a stereotypical view of the black male. Hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't just, God, I can't even remember his name anymore, but, you know, Rodney Trayvon King. Martin, Rodney King. Rodney goes back a ways, but yeah. Yeah, and it's sad that, we, <laughs> that we're still having the same dialogue. And the reason we're having the same dialogue is we don't have this dialogue. Hmm. We're not having this conversation. I got another big one for you. Hmm? Um, one of the things that we, we've talked to both GOP and Democratic candidates on this program Um Obviously, the demographics in our country are shifting mm -hmm. much more towards Hispanics than mm -hmm. blacks. Um, but black women put Joe Biden in office. Black women put Barack Obama in office. Mm -hmm. What would it take for black women to vote for a Republican? A good Republican. Well, OK, that's a bit of a simple, simplified answer. What does it mean to be a good Republican? For the for the for a black voter. Oh, you're gonna hate me because I'm gonna do the third grade answer. Somebody that black women like. Okay. I think that blacks would have voted for Mitt Romney if it was a choice between Donald Trump and Mitt Romney. Oh yeah. If it had been a choice between um, McCain, John McCain, and, and Donald Trump, we would have voted for John McCain. It's not a Republican and Democratic thing. It's just a values thing. I couldn't I couldn't take his values. Yeah. I like John McCain. You know, I like Mitt Romney. Um, yeah. A new Bob Dole. Are you denying that, that the Af African-American voters, as a, which are not monolithic, but in, in the polls, traditionally do not vote for Republicans, even at the lower levels? Republicans don't speak to us. Well, there's the answer. Yeah they, yeah, they ignore us. You know, they act like we don't exist. So why would I vote for you if you if you're Tom Cotton and you come up with something cockamamie like critical race theory? You, know? you didn't come up with critical but, race theory. But the whole argument is just <laughs> for caca. Is that is that the for word? Cocta. For cocta. For cocta. Is that Yiddish or Italian? That's Yiddish. Got any burning questions for us? I actually I ask you the question. The, the, we had a great question that time you were on the show. And it was actually one of the questions that really stuck with me, which was on a Sunday morning, both Sunday morning is the most segregated yeah. hour in America. It bugs me. And, and you said it bugged you. And uh. you said, what was the difference? And I told you exactly what we talked about earlier. When you go to church and you're black, you need to go to church. It's a spiritual guttural thing that you feel like you have to be there because if you're not, there's a part of you that's missing. And then you go into a white church and which is a shame that you even say a white church yeah. But it's a it completely it's an intellectual yeah. thing that all of a sudden you're having this conversation and you hear the minister say, now, let's turn to the first chapter of Genesis. You know, whereas the black preacher might say, Moses, you know, <laughs> it's a completely different experience. We're different. And I don't know if it's because of our you history. You don't know my inner Aretha. <laughs> my wife is going to come in here and pimp slap you in a minute. <laughs> 
<laughs> but on, on the emotional connection with yeah. with Christ, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, like I'm down for that, and I don't always find that in. But that's white but that's what that's what made the conversation so good was that we were able to have that conversation. Yeah. Because the stereotypes are deafening. Um, like I told you, I went into that church in North We're Carolina. Much standing up and sitting down in a lot of churches, white churches. <sighs> Don't get me started. And but there's <laughs> also too much too long in the black church. It's just like really. Well, that that yeah. is one reason I haven't joined a black church. <laughs> But we've got to three hours plus the meal, Don't but you, the meal plus afterwards. the meal. And afterwards, then we're going to have Bible we have study. We have a lot of Hispanics in our church. So we do, we do Peruvian chicken. Right. So we get the, we get the, the lunch afterwards. But the conversation that we're having right now yeah. is the conversation that I could have with Tom Carton, Cotton off camera. Mm. And you what we need that, yeah. to move is to be able to have the off camera conversation. This is vulnerable with, though, man. This we put a lot out there. I was pretty. But they did in the sixties too, and then in the seventies and the eighties. Why can't we? That's part of the. That's part of the the healing. We'll get there. You know, that's the. We'll get there because there's the like the upside down. For for somebody like Tom Cotton, there's the upside down version of of woke, uh, or or it might it might actually be the same thing. There's just as much cancel culture yeah. for, for Tom oh, Cotton. Okay. I know in my yeah. district. You know, listen, we, we have a purple district, but but um, in California, 25. But Mike Garcia, Mike Garcia, he doesn't hear from 95 percent of us. He only hears from the five percent of oh, the he most hears from radical. You plenty, Corey. No, he hears <laughs> he hears from the people that write checks. You run into Tom Cotton in the grocery store and he's going to be talking about. It's hot. Um, the, the Maryland crabs are good this year. They're bigger. The corn is good. He's not going to be talking about critical race theory. He's doing that because he's getting check checks. Yeah, yeah he needs and to play to that crowd. we sometimes put them in the place where they're getting checks. So who are you writing checks to? Um, the Gang of Eight that uh, managed to get an infrastructure bill done. Love it. Um, actually, Biden, not writing checks to him at all, but he did come to town and say, I'm going to get something done on, yeah, on yeah. a bipartisan basis. And damned if he didn't. Problem solving was going to. Yeah, in the, in the House, yeah. problem solving was going to. So yeah. I, I, got, I got some hope for those guys. I do too. How do we find D.C. today? D.C. today is on, it's in 52, I think it is, million homes right now. Wow. wow. Yeah, it, it's growing. It's one of the fastest growing networks. Uh, it's on Fios. So it's on Xfinity. Um, BNC Go is the easiest way to find it online. Um, but I literally watch it on Hulu. Yeah. And I watch it on. I mean, I'm, I'm a cord cutter now. So you're asking me where to find it. Oh, YouTube. You can watch YouTube. YouTube. You can watch the clips yeah. on YouTube. But um, no, it's like any other emerging media. What I like about it is that it's there. Yeah. And Good. what I like about this is that it's there. We have to have these conversations. We really do. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.